1: This is Somewhere in the Skies,
0: with Ryan Sprague. Headline edition
2: July 8th, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. Army officers say the missile found sometime last week has been inspected at Roswell, New Mexico, and sent to Wright Field, Ohio, for further inspection. (laughs) Colonel William Blanchard of the Roswell Air Base refuses to give details of what the flying disc looks like. In Fort Worth, Texas, where the object was first sent, Brigadier General Roger Ramey says that it is being shipped by air to the AAF Research Center at Wright Field, Ohio. The disc also appeared too flimsy to carry a man. I got a letter from 13 year old Ryan from Belfast. Now, Ryan, if you're out in the crowd tonight, here's the answer to your question no. As far as I know, an alien spacecraft did not crash in Roswell, New Mexico, in 1947. (laughs) And, Ryan, if the United States Air Force did recover alien bodies, they didn't tell me about it either, and I want to know. We're confident once the report is out and digested by the public that this will be the final word on the Roswell incident. The conclusion of the first report left no doubt that what was recovered near Roswell, New Mexico in July 1947 was debris from a formerly top-secret Army Air Force's research project codenamed Mogul. Mogul was an attempt to acoustically detect Soviet nuclear blasts and ballistic missile launches. In 1947, it was the misidentification of these radar reflectors that is most likely the famous flying disk.
1: The final voice you heard was that of Colonel John Haynes of the U.S. Air Force in a press conference given at the Pentagon on June 24, 1997. In this briefing, Colonel Haynes gave what the Air Force considered the final determination on what crashed in the deserts of Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. After decades of first hand witness testimony and endless theories on what happened that night, it became official that Project Mogul was to blame. But the public was not convinced. Countless inaccuracies arose from the Air Force final report, and the UFO enthusiasts remained steadfast that what crashed was and remains an alien craft with alien occupants aboard. But in 2005, a book was released that brought forth a new theory far more complex than crashed UFOs or weather balloons. The book in question, Body Snatchers in the Desert, contemplated a highly confidential U.S. government-sanctioned program to conduct medical experiments on handicapped, disfigured, and diseased Japanese POWs, exploited as expendable victims by their captors, and flown at high altitudes in advanced balloons and possible aircraft. When one of these missions failed and crashed to the ground, the Roswell incident may have seemingly been born. Today, I speak with Nick Redfern, the author of over 40 books on a wide range of topics, both Body Snatchers in the Desert and a new follow-up book, The Roswell UFO Conspiracy. Expanding on his original theories in the Roswell UFO Conspiracy, Redfern brings forth more credible information and individuals to back up his ambitious claims and sheds a whole new light, though rather dark, on the entire Roswell controversy. Could the most famous UFO event in modern history have been a sinister, top-secret project gone awry? And if so, does this shatter the entire UFO mythos that has wrapped itself around this case for over seven decades? These questions, and many more, are laid out with today's guest. So, without further ado... Let's get to our interview with Nick Redfern. All right, guys, today I am here with Nick Redfern. I have been following this man's work for so long. Half of my library here at home consists of his name. He is one of the hardest working people I know out there in ufology and everything in between. So, Nick, thank you so much for joining me on Somewhere in the Skies today.
2: Oh, thanks a lot, Ryan. Thanks for having me on.
1: Yeah, of course. Um, The reason I'm having you on today is because we have the 70th anniversary of the Roswell incident coming up in July. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there have been so many explanations given Mm -hmm. as to what happened in Roswell in 1947. But you truly took that ball and ran with it with your uh, your new book that we'll get to shortly. But I want to start with your first book on this topic, Mm -hmm. if that's okay with with you. Yeah, we've we've heard many explanations about what crashed in 1947, but none as controversial, I would say, and as scrutinized by the UFO community as what you brought forward in 2005. So, for those who may not be familiar with your first book on the Roswell case, can you tell us a little about about body snatchers in the desert.
2: Yeah, well, this was basically based around testimony that came from about six or seven elderly people. Two three, excuse me, three of them were from the intelligence world. One was in the military and one was in the medical community. Those were the primary sources, but there were a few others as well. And it was sort of like a convoluted way in which I got in touch with them, which I talk about in the new books. That In the first book, the publisher, Simon & Schuster, just wanted the data But I felt it was kind of, you know, good to present some information on how I got to know these people, but they didn't want to do that. So that's why in the new book, I've sort of detailed how I came to know these so-called whistleblowers. And basically, the story that they told was that, yes... There was a big cover-up at Roswell, yes, that something came down, and that, yes, there were bodies involved as well. And the story that they collectively told was sort of, to summarise it, was sort of like post-war era, post-Second World War era experiments using people in things like high-altitude exposure flights, like experiments, that kind of thing. Many of these incidents or flights, if you like, involved massive balloon arrays, and, in some cases, where they would have these detachable lifting body type crafts attached to the to the balloon, so there 's a lot of ex- weird experimentation going on, and in the same way that at the end of the Second World War, a lot of the Nazi scientists who were experts in rocketry were secretly brought over from Germany to work in New New Mexico on on the rocket programs at White Sands. In the same way that that happened, there was also like a clandestine Japanese program to bring Japanese scientists over because in the closing stages of the war, the Japanese were working on these gigantic balloons that would come over to the United States with these detachable lifting body type of craft in sort of like a kamikaze type mode. So the the technology for these sort of radically different balloon devices were brought to New Mexico as well, where a lot of the, the studies were undertaken. And according to the story that was given to me, there were actually several fatal incidents with these flights in New Mexico. But one of them, most of them were hidden because the military got there first when these things came down. But with the Roswell case, as everybody knows, that the rancher at the the Foster Ranch where the wreckage was found... Matt Brazel, the rancher, got there before anybody else, and that included the military, so the cat was out of the bag, so to speak. And in this case, again, it was one of these massive balloon arrays, supposedly, uh, with a detachable craft and people on board. And because, you know, you had these connections with the Nazis and the Japanese and the human experimentation angle, it was all hidden under this sort of cover of weather balloons, flying discs, Uh, crash test dummies, mogul balloons, and who knows how many cover stories. Now, of course, the big question is, is that the real scenario? You know, as I point out in the new book, there are sort of 10 or 12 Mm -hmm. theories for what happened at Roswell. So, you know, the... that's why the case is so controversial because there are so many theories but this is the one more than any other that I've I've sort of pursued over the course of two books.
1: Right, right. And in the new book, The Roswell UFO Conspiracy, Exposing a Shocking and Sinister Secret, this is like you mentioned, a follow-up where you you get more in-depth. You you bring these people forward more than you did before. Could you give us sort of the impetus of why you wanted to do this follow-up book and what new Mm. information we can glean from these these scenarios that you've brought forward?
2: Well, yeah, there are a couple of reasons why I wanted to write the book. One was because, you know, the book came out, Body Snatchers came out in 2005. So we're talking 12 years ago. And in that 12-year period, you know, I was able to get a lot more material and data that supported that particular theory. But the other reason was that, you know, back in 2005 when body snatchers came out and I was sort of you know the worst thing in ufology possible <laughs> to, to a lot of people the uh, people were saying well you know this is Nick Redfern's theory or Nick Redfern's story etc etc and I wanted to sort of put the, the that to rest because a lot of people either didn't know or just flat out ignored the fact that numerous people were actually given this story long before me of this sort of Japanese components and the huge balloon angle and you know, people used in, like, guinea pig flights, that kind of thing. For example, Leonard Stringfield, uh, who was a well-known researcher of crashed UFOs who died in 1994, he was given the story in 1990 and published it in 1991. In 1997, Popular Mechanics magazine published, which is a, you know, well-respected magazine, published Mm -hmm. an article stating that they had been told of a forthcoming release of documents which would show evidence of a Japanese equivalent of paperclip and that the the wreckage at Roswell would be shown to be a Japanese, Japanese balloon inspired with, again, one of these um, lifting body type craft and with the bodies, being human bodies, using these experiments. And there's several other, you know, I won't go through all of them, but there are several other examples like that which came way before my book, not only before before my book was published, but even before I'd spoken to the people who I spoke, spoke to for the book. So in other words, you know, it's a situation where, regardless of whether people accept that theory or not, it has been around a long time. I guess the main reason why people kind of tied it to me is because I wrote a book on it, you know, and a book's more visible than a, a small article. So that was the, those are the two main reasons, were to sort of get the new information out there and to demonstrate, you know, that this was also a story that you can find multiple strands on if you're prepared to go and look for it rather than just my book, you know.
1: Right, well, let's let's break down that idea of bodies being found. This has always been one of the most controversial aspects of the case. Yeah. Uh, many first-hand, second-hand, third-hand witnesses have said they saw, you know, mangled bodies that looked like they'd been deformed or uh, mm-hmm. destroyed in in this crash. So in terms of these high-altitude experiments that you said about uh, Japanese people, where did this information actually come from, Nick?
2: Well, what happened was, and this is what I talk about in the new book, it's a, it's a little bit convoluted story, so I'll keep it kind of brief. <laughs> rather than sort of ramble on yeah. but in 1998 I wrote a book called uh, The FBI Files and it was a study of all the UFO files that up until that point the FBI had released through the Freedom of Information Act a lot of those files concern UFO sightings at the Oak, Ridge, uh, excuse me, the Oak Ridge Atomic Energy Establishment in Tennessee. Now, you know, whenever you write a book, people tend to contact you about their experiences. And I uh, got a letter which came through Simon and Schuster, who were the publisher of the FBI files. And, you know, they... Typically most books, you know, they'll say inside, if you want to contact the author, write to the publisher of this address. Mm-hmm. And you know, I got quite a bit of feedback and one was a letter that came from the United States. You know, I was living in in the UK at the time. And it came from an elderly woman who said she worked at Oak Ridge back in the 1940s through the early 50s and that she could share some information with me that I would find interesting. And and I assumed because she'd read the book and she referenced the chapter in the book, which was called, I think it's called The Oak Ridge Secret or something like that. And I, I assumed that's what she wanted to talk about, her knowledge of UFO sightings in and around... You know the Oak Ridge area and she was very cagey she wouldn't put the actual story she wanted to tell me into on paper she wouldn't let me speak to her on the phone about it she wouldn't let me to fax it now, that was you know we're talking that's how long ago it was you know right, fax right. <laughs> and, and um and i said well you know i live in england so it's it's kind of tough if you're not willing to put it in paper not willing to talk on the phone you know, it was early years of internet and she wasn't on the internet. And so it kind of stalled. But then when I moved to the US in 2001, uh, just purely coincidentally, she was actually by then living in California. And when I came over and people over here knew I was over here, I was asked to do like a series of lectures up the West Coast. And that made it sort of the perfect time to finally speak to her. And she was in her sort of late seventies then. Uh, but we sat down, she told me this story about how when she was at Oak Ridge, uh, where a lot of research was done into, uh, like, for example, how you know, radiation has an effect on the human body and so on. Because, mm-hmm. be- again, bearing in mind, you know, um, the 40s was when a lot of this research was going on, and certain answers hadn't been, you know, solved as far as, you know, things like high-altitude flight, radiation exposure, that kind of thing. And she told me that on several occasions unusual bodies, unusual looking bodies, I should say, were brought in to the uh, facility. This included people who looked like just regular normal people who'd clearly been in some sort of, you know, pulverizing accident of some sort. Others were Japanese people and some of them were people who were clearly physically handicapped, you know, had genetic issues and in some cases uh, there were some who had like extra fingers some who had oversized heads you know which again is like a you know an established medical condition in certain you know with certain syndromes mm-hmm. and the story that she got was that these people were actually taken from like hospitals and asylums and things like this and used in some of these high altitude flights and when i spoke to her you know she told the story but I mean, I'm not exaggerating when I say you know she was she was terrified, and and very concerned as to not just you know what should she should she say, but even should she say anything. And she shared the story with me. Uh, actually, uh, I think it was her son-in-law um, brought her along to the meeting, and and I said to her, I said, well, you know, th- this is an interesting story. Can, is there anything else you can add to it? And she actually knew three of three other people who were willing to talk. Now, as I point out in the book, I never was able to fully confirm how these people all knew each other, but they were all elderly people who all claimed to have worked in this particular field and had knowledge of it. Uh, so somehow, uh, granted it's speculation, but somehow they, they clearly at some point in the past had been together you know and and spent time working together and so then it was a case she was able to put me in touch with those they were able to put me in touch with a couple more people so by roundabout that was 2001 so roundabout late 2002 i'd got a huge amount of information and i'd interviewed all of these people. So then it was a case of putting it together and I spoke to Patrick Weege, who was um, Patrick at the time, who who now runs the Anomalist, but at the time he was working on a new project of books for Simon and Shuster over here. Mm -hmm. And he pitched the idea to them and they liked it. And so that's that's basically the, the original background from, had I not written the book, the FBI files with the Oak Ridge chapter in there, the woman who worked at Oak Ridge probably wouldn't have contacted me because she would have no reason to. And I wouldn't have got the story. So it was just purely down to those sort of random chance events more than anything else.
1: Wow. Yeah. And we, we've we heard that random chance aspect with this case more than any. I mean, mm. most of us wouldn't even know about the case if, you know, Jesse Marcel yes, Jr. That's right. didn't happen mm. to... Uh, run into Stanton Friedman so I mean it's incredible how what has come forward about this case and clearly having it have happened 70 years yeah. ago we have very few individuals still alive to talk about yeah. it Now there are uh there's files Nick that you brought forward in this new book that were revealed in the 90s could you tell us about these missing files that were f- um, about the Roswell yeah. base and what these consisted of?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, this goes back to really 1993, and what happened was that the then congressman of New Mexico, Stephen Schiff, he heard about the Roswell case around about that time, and he heard these stories about people being threatened, you know, lives being threatened, you won't talk about this, and he wasn't sort of like a full-on believer in the UFO angle, but he was convinced by the uh, the sin you know the sincere nature of these people and their obvious truthfulness that he felt that at least something happened on the ranch back in '47, that wasn't a weather balloon or didn't involve a weather balloon, and so Schiff decided to look into this further. And what he did, he contacted what back then was called the General Accounting Office. Uh, today it's called the the Government Accountability Office, and they're basically the investigative of Congress. You know, if somebody wants something investigating within the government, the GAO are the people who will sort of look into it, and. Schiff approached the the GAO and asked them to to look into Roswell to to see if there are any files around, and that's exactly what they did. And the GAO is a very powerful organisation, and they pretty much ordered every government agency of relevance to hand over any files that they might have, and that included the Air Force, the Navy, the Army, NSA, CIA, DIA, FBI, everybody was ordered to basically search their files for anything pertaining to Roswell. Now, nothing came up other than the one or two scraps of paper that have surfaced through the Freedom of Information Act that, um, that really don't, you know, tell us anything. But during the course of the investigation, uh, two interesting things happened. The Air Force, rather than just um, hand over, the, you know, any files that they might have, which turned out actually to be none, they initiated their own investigation and, and concluded that what came down was a Mogul balloon, which was one of these gigantic balloons for essentially monitoring for Soviet atomic bomb explosions. You know, they would fly high and that they could detect you know, if, the, if the Soviets had actually successfully detonated an atomic bomb. So that was the Air Force's conclusion. But... During the process of looking for files on Mogul, which they thought was the answer, they found that, oh, excuse me, I should say that the GAO found, but also then informed the Air Force, that all of the outgoing messages from the Roswell base, from 45 to 50, were gone. They were just literally vanished. (laughs) Now... I mean, that, that's not you know rumor, hearsay, or conspiracy. That that's a, that's a historical fact. All of the outgoing messages from the base for that six-year period cannot be found anywhere, and even the Air Force and the GAO admitted that when they spoke to archivists and people overseeing you know these historical files, no one could figure out when the files had gone missing. I mean, in theory, you know, these files, these massive amounts of files that are kept, you know, locked away, if they hadn't been studied for years, well, the files could have been pulled back in, you know, the early 50s and shredded or just removed to another secure location. It was only when the Air Force and the GAO went looking that there was a realization that the files were gone. So, you know, I point out in the book, it could have been 50 years ago, it could have been 20 years ago, or it could have been, you know, the day before the Air Force and the GAO descended on the archives, you know, and mm-hmm. somebody quickly grabbed them at the last minute. We just don't know. But for the, for the UFO angle, people who, who adhere to the idea that Roswell was a UFO crash, they have said, well, you know, that's evidence that a UFO came down because the files from 47 are gone. Well, Yeah, the files from 47 are gone. But as I point out in the book, also the files from 45, 46 right through to 50 are gone. Now, what's interesting is that people I interviewed back in 2001 actually said that the the Roswell event was the only one that really became known in New Mexico because the rancher got there first and, you know, the cat was out of the bag. But they all said that there were a number of other of these experiments that ended badly, but the military got there first and it was all covered up. But they talked about these events going on from 45 to about 49. So, you know, as I point out, you could make a case that if this was just a UFO event out of the blue in 47, why pull the files from 45 and 46? But if, as the people I interviewed said, these experiments were going on from 45 till post-Roswell then that actually sort of strengthens the idea of a series of secret experiments if you're going to take files that cover six years and which also cover two years before the crash itself. You know, it sounds very intriguing and eye-opening when people, when ufologists say, you know, the 47 files from Roswell are missing, which technically is true, but when you say that it's actually the files from 45 to 50 then it actually presents like a a different picture or it can present a different picture.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And in terms of that, the secret experiments, uh, could you tell us, Nick, these two individuals, Sheridan Cavett and Bill Rickett, how did they Mm -hmm. fit into this story of the secret experimentation aspect?
2: Right, yeah. I mean, they were two of the most intriguing characters in the Roswell story. They're both dead right now, but they they have sort of the distinction of being the two guys, along with Jesse Marcel, who were actually out at the ranch before, you know, the, the main military cleanup occurred. What happened was that the rancher, Matt Brazzle found this strange wreckage, went to the local police, and in no time, you know, it reached the eyes and ears of the staff at Roswell. So initially it was somebody's just found something on this ranch, and obviously the people at Roswell, if this, you know if the experiment story is true, then certainly the people who were ordered to go out, Marcel, Rickett, and Cavett, they weren't clear to know, you know, what was going on. They just went out there and found this strange wreckage. Now, there's good evidence that at one point, after Marcel had gone back, Cavett and Rickett went out together, just the two of them, and found not just the strange wreckage, but with Brazel in tow, who was showing them around the area where he'd found things that had come down, that they also found a solitary body. And this was a couple of miles from the, the site where you have all this strange foil-like material on the ground. And then, reportedly, there was another site where there was the remains of some sort of vehicle that had come down. Now, over the years, Ricketts, Bill Rickett did open up a little bit, and Stan Friedman spoke to him in the mid-'80s, and he talked a bit about his knowledge of Roswell and how he went out there, but he kind of totally clammed up. He was almost like a deer caught in headlights when Stan brought up the issue of bodies, and mm. all he would say is, well, there are different aspects of security or different levels of security relative to Roswell. And there are certain levels that I can't talk about. So he was really concerned. And Cavett, who was actually uh, like in the, you know, one of the intelligence guys at the base, he was someone who also was very, very careful not to bring up the issue of bodies. And when it was brought up with him, he reacted very sort of, you know, in a hostile fashion. Now, Rickett and Cavett more, even more than Marcel, because he just, you know, all he saw was the initial field of wreckage, and then he drove back, and then it was after that that Cavett and Rickett went out. So in other words, those two guys, Cavett and Rickett and the rancher Brazil, really were the ones who were there first and knew what was going on. Now, Cavett, in 1994, was actually interviewed by the Air Force as part of its investigation into the possibility that it was a mogul balloon that came down. And they actually actually, um, flew out and then drove to his address. And Colonel Weaver, who was responsible for the, the Mogul report, interviewed Cavit in his home while Cavit's wife Mary was there as well. Now, the interview is actually contained in a huge Air Force report, which runs to about a thousand pages. I'm not kidding. And the interview is, is in there as one of the appendices. And it talks about how Colonel Weaver was asking Cavit, well, what did you see? And he said, a weather balloon. And weather balloons, they're tiny. You know, you could fit one in the trunk of your car. You know, you could probably put it on the front seat if you folded it up, you know. The weather balloons are very small. And the problem is that why the Air Force concluded that it was a mogul balloon that came down was because mogul balloons were massive. They were like gigantic arrays, which were literally like 600 feet long. I'm not kidding, that's how big they were. So the Air Force's conclusion, which does make some sense, is that it would have to be a gigantic balloon and not a weather balloon, you know, to explain this massive field of debris. But Cavett would not have any of that. He said, nope, he said it was just an area of about 20 feet and it was a weather balloon. And even Marcel, you know, and and even Rickett said, no, you know, it was a field uh, just strewn with this stuff, you know, for literally like 600 feet. But Cavett, even when he was speaking to the Air Force, Decades later for this report, he just would not say anything about or he wouldn't endorse anything other than it being a weather balloon and that it was roughly about 20 feet of materials, foil, and that was it and there was nothing else to it. Now, some people have uh, painted the Air Force as the bad guys in all this, you know, that they were lying and covering up the UFO crash or whatever, but I don't believe that's the case. What I think is that the Air Force... Legitimately went looking, couldn 't find anything at all relative to Roswell, but came up with the, what they felt was the best answer, which was the mogul balloon. they admitted you know they couldn't find any proof of that, but I, so I think the Air Force legitimately and honestly did a search, but came up empty handed, thought it was a, concluded it was a mogul balloon, that was their best estimate, and cavevit would not even endorse that. He, he wouldn't even go as far as to say it was a mulga balloon. He just, he just rigidly said, no, sorry, no, no, it was a weather balloon, which of course doesn't make any sense when right. everybody else talking about this huge field. But... The, so the the, the the last most important thing about Cavett is that Tony Brigalia, a researcher who looked into this, spoke with Cavett's family, etc., and found out that in his sort of last dying days in the 90s, that, that Cavett refused pain medicine because he was fearful that he might say something, you know, in, in sort of like a foggy state, you know, on powerful pain meds. He was worried or scared, actually. That he might say something and reveal what he knew. And he actually, you know, you, you think of somebody who's dying and they're in pain to actually avoid taking pain meds because of worrying about something that happened back in '47, And he's telling the Air Force it was just a weather balloon. You know, it seems to me that Cavett went to the grave knowing exactly what happened, but was clearly still answerable in the 90s to some higher organisation that you know even sort of outweighed the air force and their investigation
1: wow that is uh that is dedication beyond anything i can imagine and it's Mm. very telling as well in terms of that nick there was also a australian informant who shared what he knew about these experiments in roswell that you uh, you put in the book could you tell us a little about this individual
2: yeah well this what happened was that to, to again to give you like a timeline the, the manuscript of Body Snatchers in the Desert was handed over to Simon and Schuster in 2004, and what happened was that because it was sort of a very controversial story, Simon and Schuster, you know, sat on it and didn't. There was no sort of pre-advanced publicity. In fact, I don't think anybody in ufology, apart from Greg Greg Bishop, knew that I was even writing the book. Mm-hmm. So it was all very, you know, sort of un, undercover, so to speak. But Unbeknownst to me at the time, roughly about eight or nine months, I think it was, before the book was even published. And a well-respected Australian UFO researcher, Keith Basterfield, Keith had been approached by an elderly guy in Australia whose father worked for British intelligence, specifically MI5. And MI5 is the British equivalent of the FBI over here. And Heath listened carefully in a a personal meeting with this guy in Adelaide, Australia, about how his father had confided in him what he knew about Roswell, which had actually come from, interestingly enough, files that MI5 had on the case. So, That kind of suggests that maybe they were sort of following the Roswell story at some point and and had collated material on it. But the story that Keith was told was extremely similar to the one that was given to me way back in 2001. And it basically involved, as Keith told me later on, and I I actually spoke personally as well with the, with the, uh, the source too, and what basically happened, he said, was that uh, there were a lot of these strange experiments going on in New Mexico in '47 or and the post-war era, which involved these gigantic balloons, again, which would have, in some cases, like these lifting bodies attached to them. Others, you know, they were sort of just high-altitude balloon flights. And in some of these flights, we know from the historical record that animals, small animals like mice and rats, were, were flown in some of these balloon flights. Mm-hmm. In other cases, they even used larger animals like apes and pigs. Um, and the, the story that Keith was given was kind of very similar to the one I got, that, you know, after doing those experiments, they crossed the line, started using human subjects. But, of course, the problem was, as Keith saw keeps source said is that the the problem was well how do you get people to do this to volunteer no one's going to volunteer well you know in in many respects they didn't want volunteers because that would sort of tell too many people about the story Mm -hmm. so what they decided to do reportedly was to take people from asylums from hospitals people who wouldn't be missed you know at a time back then when sort of psychological illnesses, you know, physical handicaps were sort of, people didn't want to talk about it, you know. And unfortunately, a lot of people just got placed in hospitals for, you know, for what often turned out to be short, you know, unfortunate lives. And so the story was that they took a number of people from hospitals, from asylums, and used them in guinea pig experiment and the one that came down on the ranch Keith saw said was almost like an identical story to that told to me of two devices like a balloon and a craft and and that kind of makes sense because everybody who's dug into Roswell deeply it, you know believers or
1: life is full of what-ifs some awesome like what if AI could fold your laundry?
2: or, you know, people who take a down-to-earth explanation, all the evidence suggests that there were two crash sites. Now, the way it was explained by Keith Source was that whatever this calamity was that kind of happened high in the sky, it resulted in the explosion of the balloon. So mm. I mean, when I say balloon, I, you know, I'm not talking about like a 30-foot kind of thing. We're talking like a giant balloon, like a almost like a Zeppelin-type balloon. Mm. And so what you have you have the sudden detachment of this craft, which was heavy. So that just went down vertically and slammed onto the the, uh, the floor of the ranch. But then you have all this balloon debris, which is much lighter, of course, raining down like snow from high above. But because, you know, you've got the weight of the vehicle slamming it down vertically into the ground, then you have the the foil-like wreckage, which is very light, coming down, but also affected by the wind and the fact that it's just light anyway. So it would clearly have come down at a somewhat different location to the craft itself. So that's why at the one location where Mac Brazel initially went out, you had this huge field of foil from this gigantic balloon, but then you have the craft itself at another site, because of the as I said, the differences of weight and trajectory from the wind vers- you know when you've got a craft versus balloon wreckage right. and right. and then, of course, both sides of the story, UFO versus secret experiments, pretty much everybody accepts that there was possibly one survivor, and that's what what Kate uh, saw said that one of these survived the crash. And and also, you know, the UFO side of things, everybody pretty much agrees that, you know, there's a lot of testimony suggesting, again, that one of the people, beings, whatever you want to call them, survived. So, you know, there were a lot of parallels between Keith's story and his sources story. And what happened was that when Body Snatchers came out in July 2005, some point after that, Keith read the book and he was like, well, you know, this sa- actually sounds just like the story that I was given sort of, you know, a year before, even down to some really pinpoint issues, you know, that were so close that it was clear to me that Keith's source, his father, I should say, and the ones I interviewed had read near identical files. So, you know, that was, that's something that was sort of, you know, pretty significant in which I include in the new book and and then that sort of then developed into other aspects of sort of following up on that story and then trying to figure out where the survivor was taken you know
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, let's talk about that survivor aspect, Nick. I mean, in the new book as well, you bring forth the work of Kathy Kasten, a UFO researcher, and uh, that location being Fort Stanton. This was extremely compelling, and while you drew many connections, this was the most telling for me. Could you tell us a little about Kathy and her work in this case?
2: Yeah, well, when when, um, Body Snatchers in the Desert came out in 2005... This was when, you know, UFO updates, Errol Bruce Knapp online discussion forum was still going. And I mean, I'd been a subscriber uh, to it for years and I would I'd occasionally comment. But when Body Snatchers came out, you know, it was like all hell broke loose. <laughs> and, and which I which I get, you know, I, I knew what it was going to happen. But I mean, I'm not someone who you know, sort of worries or panics, oh, people aren't going to like me, you know, that that's not my character. You know, if I find something I think is important to get out, I put it out. And, you know, what the consequences are, we come to that when we come to it. So what happened was a lot of people in not just ufology, but particularly in the Roswell field, read the book. And that sort of provoked... A huge months and months of debate and comments and posts on UFO Update. You know, I'd wake up every morning and uh, after breakfast, you know, I'd log on and there'd be like 20 more comments to reply to. You know, yeah. and there was a lot from people like David Rudiak, uh, Gilles Bourdain, France, Kevin Randall, etc., etc. And some of the some of the comments and posts were quite rational you know just to general questions in which you know i did my best to answer and and a good debate would go on there were other people who were just you know they were paying for blood you know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah that, that they got like that my response to them was like the middle finger you know but, <laughs> um, i just ranted at them you know? yeah. I, they ranted at me i ranted back and um so this went on for a while now in terms of who was actually commenting. One of them was Cathy Caston. And Kathy was someone who was quite, in her comments at Year Updates, it was clear that she was open to this theory. So I sort of put out a feeler to her on email and she got back in touch with me. This would have been sort of late 2005. And we chatted on the phone for quite a long time. And it turned out from that conversation that, unknowingly to me, that Kathy, as far back as 2001 had been following this Japanese angle of Roswell and the sort of human experimentation angle. And she sent me over the next couple of years various papers and articles that she'd put together and also synopsis of a book and a couple of sample chapters, but which had never been published. And We we used to chat a lot and, you know, send each other stuff over. And unfortunately, uh, Kathy died at the age of 72 in 2012. Now before she died she sent me quite a bit of stuff and said you know if you want to use this feel free and go ahead when she died her family got in touch and basically because they knew we were friends and had covered the same ground they offered to send me and allow me to use kathy's files and i mean literally what happened was that literally thousands and thousands of pages of material turned up on the doorstep in big heavy cardboard boxes Mm. and some of it had nothing to do with UFOs. Some was on mind control research and you know, military history, that kind of thing. But as I went through the material, there was a, actually turned out to be a lot of material on Roswell and her findings and discoveries on the case, which I'd never seen before, but which were all relevant. For example, she had a number of sources who claimed to know what had happened to the surviving Passenger, if you like, or guinea pig on this flight, who was apparently critically injured. Now, what's interesting is that, you know, you have the Foster Ranch where everything came down. Now, as far as the story went, the, there were three or four people on board. One of them survived, albeit in a critically injured state. The others were dead. And the, Cathy's sources told her that the ones who were killed on impact, the bodies were taken back to Roswell and the hospital there to where they could be sort of autopsied to try and figure out what went wrong, or to preserve them so that down the line they could be examined more fully. But she said that the all the information, or excuse me, uh, Kathy's files suggested that the one survivor was taken to a place called Fort Stanton. Now what's particularly interesting about Fort Stanton, it's an old military base that actually goes back to the 1800s and it's actually in Lincoln County where the Roswell crash occurred and while it's not you know, within spitting distance, it's actually no distance at all from the ranch Mm -hmm. now what's particularly intriguing is that during the Second World War Fort Stanton was home to so-called enemy aliens, Japanese enemy aliens as they were known in the Second World War you know, people who were Japanese but who lived in the US and then of course when we went to war with the Japanese a lot of those people were put into kind of like, you know, detention camps. On top of that, Fort Stanton was also at one point home to physically handicapped and psychologically affected people as well. So, you know, you have, you have the key components of the physically handicapped people, psychologically affected people, Japanese people, all housed, if you like, at Fort Stanton and Fort Stanton is, as I said, you know, stone's throw from the Foster Ranch. So if Kathy's sources were telling the truth, it would make perfect sense to take a critically injured crew member, if you like, to take them to Fort Stanton because it was so close. You know, it was no distance away at all. And the most outrageous, I mean, it is outrageous, but, it, you know, if it's true, it's even more sensational. Her sources said that the man was critically injured and died at Fort Stanton several days later, and uh, to hush it all up, he was actually buried, his body was buried in the huge cemetery which overlooks Fort Stanton, and it is a huge cemetery. It was what, Fort Stanton was once a tuberculosis hospital, and, you know, many people died, and there's more than a thousand graves in that cemetery. So, you know, there's a, there's that angle to be still to be pursued, but I mean, you know, no one can kind of, you know, go around digging up all the all the graves, uh, right? It's <laughs> not going to work. But I mean, it was a fascinating story, and and again, it wasn't just sort of to me, it wasn't just important because it was a fascinating story, but it was because Kathy had uncovered this extensive amount of material, and this was all done without her telling anybody in the community for the most part, and yet. It dovetailed and paralleled very much what I'd found, what Keith Basterfield had found, etc., etc. et cetera. Now, one of the people that Kathy that focused on significantly was a man named Randall Lovelace, who went on to have a, a very high position within NASA. Right. And Kathy had a number of sources who told her that he was at the forefront of trying to figure out, you know, or trying to try and save at least try and ha- save or help or the military to understand why he died and you know what had caused the injuries i mean obviously you know his impact but what had caused you know the accident to occur and reportedly that lovelace was out at fort stanton within like hours of the military coming across the craft and the bodies and was asked to sort of you know offer his opinion such as it could be, you know, under the circumstances. But but Lovelace was someone who was ba- uh, based, you know, no distance away in Albuquerque. And, and he was someone who was at the forefront of early research into high-altitude flights, understanding how, you know, the, the developments in, into the space race, you know, as to how that would affect people. And as I said, he did become a major figure in NASA and so and but what's interesting is that there have been rumors over the years of a Lovelace connection to roswell so again you know kathy was really at the forefront of this and and some of her material she was actually clearly quite concerned as to what she'd found and i think reading between the lines that i think she probably destroyed some of the papers for fear that you know they fell into the wrong hands it would name names and you know people could end up in major problems so i think there are certain aspects of kathy's files we'll we'll never really see but what we can see you know certainly adds a lot of weight to this sort of guinea pig japanese handicapped people massive balloons and then of course Fort stanton you know which, which is sort of integral to nearly all of those issues
1: all of this, Nick, all of this is extremely compelling. And personally, I feel it very logical. But there are those who I'm sure you've heard from and within the UFO community who will argue the artifacts that were found at the crash Mm. site, having hieroglyphics, some sort of alien writing found on this, or even the memory foil that many say Mm -hmm. that they found on site. Could you tell us a little about these artifacts and not your argument, but the controversy surrounding what you've brought forward and the original testimony? Yeah,
2: well, yeah, I mean, one, one of the main issues that people talk about is, you know, this reference to strange writing or hieroglyphics or messages, however you want to term it, but some sort of what were clearly, you know, like uh, hieroglyphs of some type on some of the wreckage. Now, People have suggested, I mean, the Air Force had an explanation for this. They said that some of the balloons they sent up had this sort of scotch tape on it, which had, and the company that made it for them, for no particular reason, they would put all these little emblems and designs on. But the way it was described, it doesn't actually sound like hieroglyphics or you know some strange language or whatever so that angle i don't think is the answer now people have suggested then well maybe it's alien hieroglyphics you know alien writing which um is an area that greg you know mentioned earlier greg bishop has a lot of interest in the whole alien writing angle and not just in relation to Roswell, but, you know, certainly in relation to Roswell too. So people have said, you know, could it be alien writing? Well, you know, if aliens crashed, then yes, it could. The story I got was that, yes, there were sort of strange markings on part of the wreckage that was found at the Roswell site. But the people I spoke to said it was Japanese writing. And I said, well, you know, how does that equate? W- wouldn't they not realize that? And, you know, they basically said, well, Little Ranch is out in New Mexico. It's kind of like, almost like condescending. It was said to me like in a condescending, insulting yeah, way, but yeah. basically saying that, well, people who lived out there wouldn't have known what Japanese writing looked like. Uh, whether or not that's true, you know, but that, that's the story that I was told. And I said, well, why would there be Japanese writing on some of these Balloon parts, and they basically gave me an answer kind of similar. It was kind of pretty much a, an identical. Or at least similar scenario in the same way that you know when in the second world war when the allies were sort of dropping bombs on the germans or whatever you know if they would drop a bomb before they drop it you know they would take chalk on board the plane and they'd write take that adolf on the Mm -hmm. on the bomb you know what i mean Mm -hmm. that kind of thing and the people i spoke to basically said they were working although they were brought over to work on these programs in new Mexico they were still kind of proud of the, you know, the Japanese people supposedly still proud of what they were working on, even though they were sort of forced to work, you know, over here. And so they would leave their own little trademark messages on the balloons, that kind of thing. Now, whether that's true, I don't know. But if it, if it is true, then it answers the question. If it isn't, then somebody has still gone to sort of a long way to try and, presents a down-to-earth explanation for the writing, do you see what I mean? So, you know, you could... Uh, I mean, obviously, the people who fully adhere to the idea that it was a UFO crash are going to say, well, no, it, it was alien writing. But on the other hand, you know, it is a fact that when bombs were dropped in the war, you know, the the, the guys on the planes did put... We write little messages, you know, or they'd put a note to their girlfriend, you know, mm-hmm. that, that kind of thing, just as sort of a, I guess it sort of helped morale, that kind of thing. So maybe, you know, if there was a German, excuse me, a Japanese contingent and they were building these balloons and they were kind of perceived as they're our balloons, maybe they would have left messages of who knows what on these devices in the same way that that we did in it, but for different reasons, you know. Now, the other angle is the whole issue of the so-called memory metal, the idea that a lot of this strange foil that was found, when you wadded it up, it would sort of spring back to its original form. I mean this is this for a lot of people is the one thing more than anything else that really kind of suggests to them at least that what came down you know was some sort of alien spacecraft a UFO. Now you can look at this from two perspectives that that is literally what it was, but there is another angle on this. Now up until sort of 4647 a lot of the balloons that were flown by the military in New Mexico were polythene balloons you know that goes for the for the weather balloons and things like that but by 40 by early 47 they were also researching polythene balloons but which were laminated with aluminum now these these polythene balloons which were laminated with aluminum when you squash them together, you know, if you, if you took a sheet of paper and you wadded up in your hand, it stays as like a ball of paper, you know. Mm-hmm. But the polythene balloons, because they had this sort of rigid poly, this aluminum coating on them, when, there was, when they wadded together, they did spring back. Now, granted, they didn't spring back to where there was not a single line or crease, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, which is what some of the witnesses said with the Roswell wreckage. But the fact is it did bounce back to, you know, its its original shape because it was so bringy because of the aluminum coating on the polythene. Now, whether or not that explains it, you know, when you look back that some of this testimony came from 30 or 40 years later and they remembered wadding this up and then it popping open, I think it is interesting, whether people agree with me or not, but it is interesting that those polythene aluminium laminated balloons actually weren't around in sort of 45, 46. So if anybody had seen a weather balloon come down in 45 or 46, it would just look like a polythene balloon. It was specifically a year or so later that these aluminum ones started to surface within only the military, and so people would not be familiar with this new type of coating. So, you know, you could make that argument that that might explain the legends, you know, of the, of the memory metal of this strange foil bouncing back to its original state. Because as I said, in 45 and 46, people hadn't seen anything like that. It was it was brand new after that era, after that period.
1: See, that's really interesting, Nick. I mean, we always hear extraordinary claims <laughs> deserve extraordinary answers. And it it seems that with all of this, you've been able to cover every aspect of what it possibly could be. And the fact that Let's say, hypothetically, this had nothing to do with aliens and E.T. presence crashing on the planet. Where, where do you think, with all this information that you've been given, that you've brought forward, where do you think this leaves us today in terms of the Roswell incident, one of the most prominent cases we have to mm. depend on in ufology?
2: Well, I think, you know, that there are a lot of potential issues that could surface if if the theory is proven, I mean, right now, even I have to admit that it's a theory or a concept because we don't have solid proof that it was a human experiment. But then again, we don't have proof that it was a UFO. And even by the Air Force's admission, they've never found a single file to suggest it was a mogul balloon. It was just their theory that it was a mogul balloon. So there's, we're wide out. You know, all across the board, there's no evidence for any any particular theory. Yeah. But... If the if the human experiment angle was proved and Roswell as a UFO event did collapse, I think it would have a major effect on ufology. And I, as I see, that's ufology's own fault. And the reason why I call it a fault is because I think Roswell should always have been treated as... A UFO, excuse me, as, as just another case. But what's happened is that Roswell has been elevated to the case, the number one event upon which much of the whole UFO history and law relies upon. And of course, you know, it's like that old adage you know, you, you put all your eggs in one basket and you drop the basket, everything goes with it. Mm-hmm. You know, the bigger they are, the harder they fall, that kind of thing. Now, If, you know, it's like, for example, if it was proved tomorrow that, say, the Socorro case in 1964 didn't happen, it was a fake or a hoax or whatever, ufology wouldn't collapse. Even if, say, a prominent abduction story fell apart, people would say, well, there's still plenty of other good abductions. But if Roswell collapses, and because it's been so tied to things like MJ-12, Area 51, back engineering, you know, dead aliens at Wright-Patterson... If Roswell collapses as a UFO event, a lot of all that, the rest of the history and the law surrounding ufology and crash UFO stories could also collapse. But it wouldn't have that wouldn't happen if Roswell was just considered just another case. But ufology, I think, made a mistake in insisting on having a number one case because when you have a number one case, the stakes are really high if something goes wrong, you know. So I think that, the future if it was proved could be i wouldn't say it'd be bleak for ufology but i actually think it might push people more down away from the idea of well if roswell wasn't a nuts and bolts ufo after all maybe the the nuts and bolts angle isn't the one we should be following and i think it could sort of push things more down you know the path that people like john keel and jack valet went down where you're dealing with something more paranormal based you know Mm -hmm. but then on the other hand I think, you know, convincing people who've spent 30, 40 years of their lives dedicatedly following the UFO angle for Roswell, I really don't see those people changing their minds because it would be such a a shock. It would be such a situation that they wouldn't want to deal with. And so consciously or subconsciously, they will continue to deny it. And, of course, the problem is... Like with any, as I said, with any scenario for Roswell, we don't have any proof. We have, you know, supposition, we have theories, we have ideas. We don't have, you know, the smoking gun documents. Although some people say we do, and they talk about the so-called Ramey memo. You know, this, I'm sure you know this story about uh, General Ramey photographed with some of the wreckage out of Fort Worth. But he's holding this bit of paper And part of it is sort of, well, actually most of it is pointing towards the camera. And of course, with today's technology, the picture's been sort of expanded, blown up. And, you know, studies have been, uh, programs have been used to try and de-blur the writing. And some of it, you know, it is clear what the words are. But the most controversial aspect is one little section that seems to refer to, quote, the victims of the wreck. Now, People, again, who follow the UFO angle or stick to it would say that's, you know, that's the smoking gun that alien bodies were found on the ranch. And maybe that is what, you know, exactly what happened. You know, I cannot prove otherwise. But what I point out in the book is that, you know, if if the right is correct, victims of the wreck, then, and it was a UFO crash that came out of the blue, I would have thought that the memo would have said not the victims of the wreck but something like the crew or the beings or the spacemen or something like that to me as I also point in the book the term victims almost has like a a human emotional tone to it you know what I mean exactly and you know victims kind of makes you know as if they were victims they were victims of something Uh, I don't mean like the victims of just a crash but victims in the sense that they were used you know, in in disturbing situations. And as I said, the way the military works, I would, you know, victims, you don't sort of see much emotion used in government documents. You know, it's just straight to the point, these are your orders, etc., etc. The victims of the wreck kind of, to me, does put, as I said, this emotional human quality on the nature of whatever these entities were, you know. So, I think I think Roswell is still wide open as to what could happen or what did happen, but it's whether or not we find a smoking gun is going to dictate a firm answer or are we just going to be talking about Roswell, Nick thinks this, Stan thinks that, Kevin thinks this. That could act, you know, in a a worst case scenario, that could be the situation that we never solve it and it gets up further and further down the line and it becomes like a ufological Jack the Ripper you know it's an old mm. mystery fascinating story but it's so long ago there's nothing we can do with it so maybe one day something will surface and that I, that would be my hope regardless of what the answer is you know i think we should all we i don't think any of us should be upholding belief systems when it comes to roswell we should all just be looking for the hard facts and and if the facts surface one or more people are going to be right and one or more pe- more people are going to be wrong and I would hope whatever the, whichever camp each of us fall into will be man enough to stand up and say, okay, you know, it's this and it, or it's that. But don't get caught up in beliefs and because a story sounds exciting and conspiratorial, just go where it goes, you know.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, when it comes down to it, Nick, like you said, we're, we're all searching for the truth. And yeah. with bringing these these theories forward, we, we are, we have to admit that they are just theories. But if we don't mm-hmm. come up with new theories, we're never going to get anywhere. So I, I think that's a very good point. We're all searching for the same thing. And that's the truth behind what happened in Roswell.
2: Yeah. But the big problem, though, is, of course, emotions get involved, you know, and I mean, yeah. I mean, that which is normal, you know, because, you know, none of us are sort of, you know, emotion free robotic machines. You know, we're people, we have our emotions and thoughts and ideas. So. that will never go away and I don't think to a degree it should go away but I do think you know that we should just sit back and kind of take a deep breath and realize that there are other scenarios and you know we we should look into we're investigating UFO cases you know we're not trying to hold uphold a religion.
1: Nick you are going to be attending the Roswell Festival this on the 70th anniversary am I correct?
2: Yes, I'm going to be burned in effigy down the main street. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say, how, how are you feeling about that? <laughs> oh, I don't mind. I was there for the 60th anniversary, and and like I said, you know, I'm not the sort of person who, you know, panics or worries about things like this. You know, I have a I have a strong character, and I'm happy to debate whether in a relaxed format or in a heated format. You know, I'm happy to debate the the pros and cons of this theory versus that theory. And I know you asked me in one of your, you know, email questions, you know, you said, do I even care what people think? Well, I do. I care in the sense that, you know, I like to know what people think of the theory, obviously. And I like to get feedback, again, regardless of whether that's good or bad, because I like to know, you know, where where the community's head is at, you know, the collective head is at. So I care in that sense, and I care in the sense that I'm always grateful, you know, when people follow what I do, you know, I'm not some sort of ego driven guy who sort of dismisses his audience. You know, I think it's important to to know what people think. But I don't. But on the other hand, if people disagree with me, that I don't care, you know, I'll just fight my position You know, I don't lose sleep thinking, oh, if I write a book about Roswell as a secret experiment, are people going to stop booking me to speak at their conferences? Mm -hmm. My mind doesn't think like that. You know, I don't worry about those kind of things or what are people going to say about me? People can say what the hell they like about me and I'll say what the hell I like to say about them, you know. You have to sort of have thick skin in this field and if you're going to go against the accepted grain, then... You better be prepared, and I am, you know, and and I, it, just as I was back in two thousand and five. So, but then on the uh, by the same token, the people who think it was a mogul balloon or aliens should, quite rightly, you know, defend their turf until we know for sure what it was that happened.
1: Yeah, well, and I mean, the fact that you are open to feedback is primarily the reason we have a follow-up to body snatchers so i think that's a very good point mm. and i'm glad to see that that you take that that you're open to that because many are not in this field <laughs> so that's in very no, not point.
2: It's like minds are made up and a mind made up is fine if you're on the right track if you're on the wrong track a mind made up is a disaster because you'll never ever go down you know that that right path <laughs> yeah
1: very good point well Nick, what's next on your path, my man? What What do you got going on? It seems like you're pumping a book out every day. We hear that cliche whenever someone <laughs> yeah. brings up your name, but it's true. Um, what, what comes next for you besides the well, 70th anniversary Roswell event?
2: Well, actually, two very different books. Um, I've got one coming out in September with Llewellyn called Shapeshifters, which is a study of, as the title suggests, sort of shapeshifting creatures throughout history, mythology, folklore. I mean, everybody thinks of, shapeshifters i think of werewolves and there are a couple of chapters in there on that but also like native american stories of skinwalkers there and there african cults that believed in the the transformation of people into leopards leopard cults and things like this Mm. and stories from the uk of these ghostly red-eyed black dogs which actually inspired conan doyle to write the hand of the Baskervilles. Those creatures can reportedly shape shift and so on. So that'll be out in September, and then in February, which is not too far away, I guess now are halfway through this year. I've got a book out on the entire Slenderman controversy called The Slenderman Mysteries, and it sort of covers issues of, although the um, you know the Slenderman was created for the internet or, and on the internet, it seemed to have sort of strode out. Of the internet into the real world, so it covers the book covers a angles such as you know could the the slender man be like a tulpa, you know, a thought form come to life as a result of all the people who follow the stories or. Is the internet becoming sort of self-aware and creating these images? Or are we living in kind of like a Matrix world where, you know, we, the, the Slender Man has now been inserted into the Matrix that we're living in, in the same way they did in the movies, you know, they almost have their equivalents with the agents, you know, these sort of emotionless guys in black suits who are inserted into the movie version of the matrix so it covers a lot of things like that tulpas the matrix you know virtual reality what is reality can dreams you know can things created in dreams sort of stride out into the real world so uh, and of course a lot of case reports as well of of, of the Slenderman.
1: oh very interesting yeah the uh, the idea of thought form has always really been mm. interesting to me so i'm definitely looking forward to that Well, Nick, the book is The Roswell UFO Conspiracy, Exposing a Shocking and Sinister Secret. Where can we find the book and uh, where can we find out everything you're
2: up to? I have a blog which I update most days called World of Whatever and the address is nickredfernfortean f-o-r-t-e-a-n nickredfernfortean dot blogspot dot com The new book, Roswell UFO Conspiracy you can get it on Amazon and you can also order it through Barnes and Noble stores as well and uh, people can also reach me at Twitter, UFO or also at Facebook, just scroll down, there are a few Nick Redferns, but just go down the list and you'll
1: find me. So. Excellent, man. Well, you know, all things considered, if you survive this Roswell anniversary, I'd love to have you on again, my man. <laughs> all uh, right. it's, it's been an immense pleasure. Thank you so much yeah, for Yeah, can let you me. know how
2: it all went. <laughs> Please
1: do. Any updates would be great. Live tweet the event. All
2: right, <laughs> all right cool. <laughs> all right.
1: Thanks again, Nick.
2: All right, thanks a lot, Ryan.
1: That's it for this week's episode. Again, to read all of Nick Redfern's work, you can find him at nickredfernfortian.blogspot.com. As usual, if you haven't already, please consider rating and reviewing the show on iTunes. It makes the show more visible to gain new listeners. If you have a guest or topic suggestion, reach me at spragge at somewhereintheskies.com. Episodes can always be found in all formats, such as Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes, and YouTube over at somewhereintheskies.com. I'll see you next Monday when we go big, exploring UFOs over Texas with researcher Jane Kyle. It's going to be a hell of an interview. Have a great week, and remember, keep your feet on the ground, but never stop searching somewhere in the skies. This has been a Third Kind production.